Mark chapter 7, verse 31. I try to remind us every week in some way of the, the right way to come to God's Word. Um, I, I do that because we need reminding, but also because I think authority is one of the categories where the, the wrong thinking of the, the world that is opposed to God is particularly focused right now. Um, authority is found in people's self-assessment, their self-identification. They, they would assign authority to their own opinions. That can be true in the church. Authority is assigned to institutions that overreach their authority, and yet for the Christian, the ultimate authority is, is written down in the Bible. So it's good for us to remember that. I was looking at a blog post this week that said, the world is catechizing us whether we know it or not, and I think that's true. We're constantly being catechized, instructed about the right way to think, and particularly the right way to think about authority. So what we're doing right now, you, you might even say, is an act of rebellion against the world's view of authority and submission to the Christian's view of authority, we're coming under God's Word. So let's, let's read it with that sense of delightful rebellion, uh, if we can this morning. <laughs> Delightfully coming under our true king, our true authority. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. In 1971, Willard J. Madsen, a professor of journalism at Gallaudet University, wrote the following words. What is it like to hear a hand? You have to be deaf to understand. What is it like to be deaf and alone in the company of those who can hear, and you only guess as you go along, for there's no one there with a helping hand? As you try to keep up with words and song, you have to be deaf to understand. What is it like on the road of life to meet with a stranger who opens his mouth and speaks out a line at a rapid pace? And you can't understand the look in his face because it is new and you're lost in the race. You have to be deaf 
to understand. Perhaps none of us know the experience of physical deafness, of being unable to hear and barely able to speak, alone in the bondage of silence, but this man did. This man right here in Mark chapter 7, he did. And yet one day, in the midst of his silent world, he encountered Jesus. And in that meeting, everything changed. Everything changed. Now, we may not know what it's like to be deaf, but we do know what it's like to feel lost in the race, as Madsen wrote. We know what it's like to feel that perhaps there is no helping hand that can reach our weakness with compassion and power. But then we come to this story, this true story about Jesus Christ, and we are invited to meet Him in it, to meet Him in this story and to understand His compassionate power in terms of our greatest needs. The greatest needs of humanity find hope and comfort in this story because Jesus is able to meet this man in His greatest needs. So let's walk through the story, and let's meet Jesus in it, and then I want to apply it to our greatest needs. The story begins with Jesus returning from the region of Tyre, going through Sidon. We wouldn't know this because we don't know geography particularly well, but this is a long journey, a long roundabout way. Some commentators speculate that perhaps he was trying to de-escalate the controversy or conflict with the Pharisees because he wasn't quite ready for that to be accelerated. And having control over the timing of his mission, he moves away into a region where he would be less well-known to the north. He goes all the way around to the other side of Galilee, and he comes again to the region of the Decapolis, where he had been before. Now, some people in that region knew about Jesus. Perhaps the testimony of the demoniac that he had delivered had been effective, and so they brought to him a deaf man who apparently, because of his deafness, he wasn't actually mute, but he had great difficulty in speaking. He had a speech impediment, the phrase says. They bring him to Jesus, and Jesus, once again, not interested in the acclaim of the crowds and probably wanting to be gentle to this man, takes him aside. They take him aside, and he takes a number of actions. First, he touches the man's ears and his tongue. You see that in verse 33. He puts his fingers in his ears. After spitting, he touches his tongue. Most likely, he is relating to this man at the level of his deepest need. Remember, this man is alone in the silence. He can't hear what they are saying about him. He can't hear Jesus say, do you want me to heal you? So Jesus connects with him at his level of greatest need. He puts his fingers in his ears. He touches his tongue. He spits as if to communicate, we're talking about your area of greatest need. And I am going to make contact with that area. Commentator D. Edmund Hebert says it this way. He pushed his fingers into the man's deaf ears to convey to him the thought that something was to be done for his deafness. No doubt the sign language was intended to stimulate the man's faith. His acts of spitting and touching the man's tongue with his finger were further symbolic actions to call the man's attention to his tongue and mouth, which were in need of his aid. They conveyed the thought that the power to deal with them 
came from Jesus. This man cannot, cannot hear Jesus say what he's about to do because he can't hear, so he places his fingers in his ears. He cannot ask the man to express his need because his speech is limited, so he touches the man's tongue, relating to the man in ways the man can understand. He is willing to connect with his greatest need. He is not keeping himself at a distance from him. You want to notice that as well. Jesus is not ever keeping himself at a distance from the greatest needs of mankind. He puts himself right up and personal with those greatest needs. He touches them. He connects with them. He is making this connection, inviting this man, based on his limited abilities, to put his faith in Jesus. The very thing that makes this man ashamed and limited and restricted, Jesus is going to come right there and invite him in his own way, to trust in Jesus and what Jesus is about to do. So he first touches the man in his ears and his tongue, and then you notice he looks to heaven. Most likely he is attempting to communicate to the man and to the people around him. The man cannot hear him pray. So he's going to communicate to the man and to those around him that what he's about to do is not a magic trick, but it certainly is a sign of his authority and dependence on his heavenly Father. He is indicating what is about to happen has something to do with the God who rules over the heavens. Then he sighs. And actually, the, the word there might better be translated groans or, or gave a, a verbal complaint. There's a sense of, of, of burden being expressed, of groaning, probably as he faces the consequences of this fallen world in this man's pitiable condition, he groans, expressing the, the certainty and the, the importance of what he's about to do in overcoming that difficulty. And then he speaks. Ephaphratha, simple word, be opened. Be opened. It brings to mind the Old Testament language of Genesis chapter 1, where God said, let there be light, and there was light. When he breathed into Adam and Eve the breath of life, and they were alive, where God speaks, creation follows. So it is with Jesus. He says, be open, and the man's ears are Open the word of God, speaks the word of God, and this man experiences a new creation. Be open, Jesus says, and the man's ears are open. Suddenly, his silent, lonely world, without the ability to hear and with only a tortured ability to speak, is delivered. He hears. His ears were open, verse 35. His tongue was released, unbound, you might have translated that, and he spoke plainly. And then Jesus commands the crowd to keep silence. Yet another reminder from Mark that Jesus' ultimate mission and identity could only be seen at a later date when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. But the crowd, for their part, cannot and will not obey him. The more he charged them to be silent, the more zealously they proclaim it. They are astonished because this man who has been deaf presumably for a long time, mute for most of his life perhaps, suddenly he is set free 
from his silent world, he now no longer needs hand gestures. He no longer, no longer needs someone to touch his ears. He can hear Jesus speaking to him. He can speak back to him. Imagine what it's like for this man, and imagine the villages and close friends who had brought him, rejoicing at this deliverance. Here's a man who found it surely difficulty to communicate with his family, with his children, with strangers, with those in the passersby. He could not easily ask questions in the synagogue. Here was a man for whom life was a silent loneliness suddenly set free by a single word. Ephaphatha, be opened. And he was opened. The crowd is astonished. The reports were true. This man really can do the impossible. He can take the most impossible in recalcitrant issues and he can turn them upside down in a moment. They assumed he had to lay his hands on the man. He touches his ears and speaks and the man is healed. So they begin to spread the report of him. He does all things well. This man does all things well. No wonder because before them, the Son of God was on display, bringing about the fulfillment of the time of the Messiah. And if they could have seen it, they might have noticed an incredible connection to their own prophecy from Isaiah chapter 35, 2 through 6. Let me read that prophecy to you. Listen to the connection between this prophecy and what takes place. Isaiah 35 says, They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now we might think, well, could you just look anywhere in the Old Testament that it references singing and make that connection? Well, notice what William Lane says about Mark's very interesting choice of a particular word in this passage. He says this, Mark's use of an extremely rare word, extremely rare, two times in the Bible, right here and in Isaiah 35, two times. His use of an extremely rare word to describe the man's speech defect is almost certainly an allusion to Isaiah 35.5, which celebrates God as the one who came in order to unstop the ears of the deaf and to provide song for the man of inarticulate speech. The fulfillment of the prophecy was expected in the days of the Messiah in the exegetical tradition of the rabbis. By means of the biblical allusion, Mark provides his readers with a sight that the promised intervention of God took place in the ministry of Jesus. So here we come back to Mark's main point that he makes again and again and again. Mark says, I know you know he's a man. You can see him, you can feel him, you can touch him, you talk to people that talk to him. What I need you to understand is he is more than a man, he is not less, he is more than a man. He is God the Son come to his people fulfilling all of God's promises to bring restoration and life and new creation into this broken world. As illustrated by a man with stopped up ears and a bound tongue who is set free with a word of recreation by Jesus himself. Be opened, and he is opened. Be freed, and he is freed. 
God has come to his people in the person of Jesus. And God has unleashed divine power in this man's body right before their eyes. No wonder they are astonished and exult in him contrary to his command, saying, He does all things well. Now, ironically, the greatest compassion seen in this passage is not in the healing of the deaf man, but in Jesus' repeated commands to be silent. Now, of all the times you would think noise would be appropriate, wouldn't it be the healing of a deaf man who can't speak? He's hearing them for the first time. Wouldn't that be a time to talk and share and take him places and parade him around and say, you know this guy, Silent Joe, listen to him now. No, the text says, Jesus again and again. Notice, notice verse 36. It's not just a, a mild, falsely modest appeal. Jesus is insistent. The more he charged them, the impression is Jesus saying, please, do not speak of this. No, I, I am serious. Do not speak of this. They get louder and louder. He has to go to his authoritative voice. Stop speaking of this. They get louder. They will not listen to him. Jesus' insistence is curious. And Mark, if, you, if you've been reading closely, Mark keeps saying the same thing about Jesus. When the crowd is excited, he goes away to a solitary place. When there's a miracle, he tells them to be silent again and again and again. This is a theme running throughout Mark, and we need to not miss its point. The greatest compassion seen in this passage is not even in the healing of the deaf man, but in Jesus' command for silence. In that command for silence, we see again the determination of Jesus to reach even deeper than the physical needs of this man. Apparently, he has a greater mission even than his mission to heal. Apparently, he has a mission where the mission to heal could potentially derail that mission and cause people to think of him as merely a physical miracle worker. And he does not want that to be how people know him. So much so that he's insistent, stop talking. This is not the high point of my mission. You do not understand yet what I've come to do. Stop talking. Bring me your sick. I will heal them, but stop talking. Surprising, isn't it? It's surprising. It's surprising that he would do that. But he is determined, and since the readers of Mark and we know the rest of the story, the secret is out. The secret is out. We're reading with the knowledge of what Jesus was going to do, what the ultimate mission, surely for this crowd, it was curious. It was yet another mystery, like the mysteries of the Old Testament prophets. But we are on the other side of the mystery. We've been given the key to the puzzle. The reason Jesus was silent when people acclaimed him as a healer was that he was determined that nothing would get in the way of his mission to be a savior. He was determined that nothing, not popular acclaim, not an escalating conflict with the Pharisees would get in the way of his mission as a savior. James Edwards 
says it this way, the command to silence both Jew and Gentile is a reminder that knowledge of Jesus by his wonders alone is inadequate knowledge. Adequate knowledge of Jesus and hence proclamation about him must await the revelation of the ultimate mystery that can come only through suffering and the cross. The physical hunger of the crowds on the hillside, the physical needs of this man, even the dead body of that young girl he gave back to her father was merely a prelude to the mission that would reveal the true compassion and power of the Son of God. That was a mission that would take him to our greatest need, the depth of our greatest bondage to sin and judgment before the holiness of God. The Son of God would not rest until he had rescued us from that prison and set us free in reconciliation with his Father. He was not content with the band-aid of healing the outside of this man, but rather with the worldwide reconciliation of sinners who needed to be made right with their God. What would you think of a surgeon who on his way to save someone's life stopped to place a band-aid on someone's finger? Well, if he had time to do it, then surely you would appreciate his compassion. But you would understand why if the crowd came around and said, oh, thank you, you're such a sweet surgeon, that's wonderful, thank you for doing that, and getting in his way, he would say, stop, move out of the way. I have deeper work to do. You understand why Jesus was saying, look, yes, I want to help, but I'm, I'm eager to help, I'm eager to, to, to heal this, this poor man. There's, there's a compassion that's revealed, but that compassion was driving him to something deeper. It was driving him to a deeper bondage that every sinner has under the wrath of God because of their sin. There was a, a greater deafness because of our hardness to, of heart to God's word. There was a greater muteness because we curse God rather than bless him. And he is going to rescue his people who are bound by that spiritual prison. And he will reach that greatest need. And so he says, stop talking about this. You don't know me yet. You'll know me then. This is a glimpse. It's a good glimpse for this guy, but it's just a glimpse. It's just a glimpse. He one day would groan under the weight of our sin. He would speak a word of life over our soul even as his power rescued this man and still rescues bodies today from sickness and ill health and even death itself. He, his power is still displayed in those earthly kind of ways. Yes, it is, but we have to keep our eyes fixed on the greater power that he comes to all those who are lost in the race, alone in a prison of silence, and he brings them into the joyous chorus of heaven. This is God, mighty to save, full of compassion and mercy, and not holding himself back from those in bondage in this fallen world. So we read this passage, yes, yes, we are impressed and should be with his healing of this deaf man, and certainly that should cause us to bring our physical ailments to him. But we should also look ahead and see how this same type of compassionate power was displayed finally in the death and resurrection of Jesus, so that he could say to all those who were bound in prison, prison, be free, and they would be free indeed. Be unbound, 
and they would be unbound indeed. Open your deaf ears and they would hear the voice of the Son of God. Let loose your tongue to sing his praises and their tongues would be changed from cursing to blessing. This is what Christ came to do and this passage hints at it and reminds us even in the passage itself that's what he is focused on. He's focused on you and me. He loved this man, but he was focused on salvation. He was focused on a rescue that would go deeper than this man's ears into our hard heart. That would go deeper than earthly prisons and into the prison of soul that can only, only be broken when Jesus Christ, the perfect man, died on the cross, paid the penalty of the law, and then rose from the dead offering freeness of life to all who would believe in him. That is the compassionate Savior that is described in this passage. So, what does Mark want us to do in light of this passage? I think Mark would say, come to him. He is the Savior who meets your greatest needs with his compassionate power. Come and let his power touch your greatest need. Let him meet your greatest brokenness. And if we are Christians who have placed our faith in him for salvation, then surely we should be eager to bring all of our lesser needs to him. If he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? This is the Savior that says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If Christ has borne the burden of our sins, surely the burdens of our lives are not too great for us to bring to him. Come to the Savior full of compassion and power. Bring your greatest needs to Him. Let us, let us, first application, let us bring our greatest needs to Jesus. This is very simple to say and very hard to do. Let us bring our greatest needs to Jesus. Now, we know this we nod on a Sunday in assent to this, but it's actually doing it that is hard, isn't it? Yes, oh, we, we should be, absolutely. I want to bring my needs to Jesus. I believe he's compassionate. I believe he's powerful. Do we really? Because during the week, when that greatest need strikes, I, I find we go all kinds of places other than Jesus. We run towards things that distract us from that need because it's painful to think about. Or we go to other solutions like our own ability to mentally strategize a plan. Or we look to human provisions, that many of which are good and wonderful, but without ever ultimately going to the Lord Jesus. You see the tendency we might say on a Sunday, oh yes, oh yes, Jesus is compassionate. That's great that he did that for that guy. Wonderful, and I believe he could do that today. But then during the week we go everywhere else when that need strikes us in the middle of the day, rather than going to the Lord Jesus. This is easy to say and hard to do. Are you bringing your greatest needs to the Lord Jesus? This, this Jesus, who is compassionate and powerful, who has already taken the burden of your sins, and surely is willing to take your recent guilt over a recent struggle with sin, and surely is willing to take your recent burden over some practical or familial or job category of suffering that you're facing. Are you willing to bring it to him? 
Listen, this is easy to say. It is hard to do. Sometimes we act as if we are no different than those who don't know the Lord Jesus. I, I read a, a book uh, a couple of years ago about the, the time in the world when, when they were still kind of figuring out antibiotics. And there was doctors that, that knew the theory to be, have been proven true, but there was others that were just kind of old school people who were just determined that the old ways were best and they were not gonna, they were not gonna treat their patients with this newfangled medicine. And there was this season where you could understand the exasperating nature of that for the doctors who knew the theory had proven true. And they're still using the same instruments and wiping them between surgeries and going right back and, and so on and so forth. And you know what, what would be tragic is if you knew it was true, you were convinced, fully convinced you knew it was true, but you still chose to not take advantage of it? You still chose to not benefit from it? I, I know it's true, but I just won't. I refuse. That's what we're like sometimes. We're like, sometimes people, I, I know Jesus has power. I know he has compassion, but I'd just rather not think about it. Listen, this passage presses us. Bring your greatest needs to Jesus. Perhaps your need is physical. Perhaps you have a need, like this guy, that no doctor can reach. Something you've suffered for a while. Something you've grown used to. Something that it's hard to pray about because the Lord has asked you to wait. And sometimes ignoring it is easier than praying again. I don't know why the Lord asks some of his people to wait a long time for healing and others he seems to heal right away. I, I don't know that, but he does. What I do know is it is always dangerous for a person to willfully stop bringing their needs to Jesus. We're either growing closer to him in our need or farther away. There is no neutral in the, the gear shift of the soul. You're either going forward or you're going in reverse. That's the only way it works. So if you're not going forward, you're going in reverse. If, if we're not bringing our needs to Jesus, functionally what we're saying is, I can handle this on my own. Now we're not saying that. You don't wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I got today. Thank you. We don't say that out loud. But really in our soul, that's what we're saying. Because he's right there inviting us to encounter him in compassion and power and wisdom that is beyond ours that sometimes makes us wait, but it is much better to be waiting in the presence of the Lord Jesus than to be hard-hearted and dismissing him because he's not acting on our timetable. Come to this Jesus, full of compassionate power, able to heal, able to rescue, able to set people free. Perhaps your need is not physical. Perhaps you're aware of a spiritual need. Perhaps your spiritual ears recently, have been closed to his word for some time. Perhaps your tongue has been silent to his praise. He can come and open your spiritual ears and loosen your mute tongue. He can do that. He is able to rescue the hard-hearted. So if you are hard-hearted this morning, and all of us have areas where our heart is hard towards him, Come to the Lord Jesus. Bring the hardness of your heart towards him. That area of your life where you would say, Lord, I will do anything for you but not that. It's the not that category of your life. I'm not saying he's gonna ask you to do that, but if there's an area of your life where you're consistently disobedient, sluggish, lazy, reluctant, 
self-excusing, whatever it is, that's the area that is your greatest need. It might feel like your greatest vulnerability, like it was for this guy, but it's a need. You have a need for the Lord to work in your life, to unblock your ears, to soften your heart, to unleash your tongue. And that might have been going on for a long time. This Savior says, bring that need to me. Bring that deafness to me. Bring that muteness to me. Do not keep it to yourself and hope some way the Lord just won't notice. Bring it to me. Bring your greatest spiritual needs to Jesus. And beware of idolatry. It's the nature of idolatry to look for a Savior in a created thing. We know we have great needs, so we seek to avoid thinking about them by watching one more episode. Or looking ahead to that next party. Or sleeping longer. Or looking to people before we look to Jesus. That happens in marriages all the time. I need you to make me happy. I need you to make me happy. And if you don't make me happy, I will be distant from you or angry at you. Look, the central problem with that is we're asking this person to do something that only Jesus can do. Now, should the spouse be a servant and try to serve one another in, in marriage? Absolutely. Should we do that? Should our children be obedient and responsible? Sure. But if we're saying to our six-year-old, I need you to make me happy, we are asking them to do what only Jesus can do. We are asking them to heal a hardness of heart that only he can heal. Listen, when we turn people into little Jesus idols, they always fall short. And frankly, we destroy them trying to get them to be more like Jesus. We, we, we need each other, but we go to the Lord Jesus with our needs, with our loneliness, with our burden, with our fatigue, with our frustration at our boss, with our uncertainty about our finances, with the sound at the car that it's making. We, we go to the Lord Jesus and invite him to come to us and meet us at the place of our greatest need. It's like, I don't know how you're going to do it, Lord, but I need you to meet me at the point of my greatest need. Help me. Meet me. Touch my greatest need with your compassion and your power. And I'm not asking anybody else to do that. I'm first asking you. Bring your greatest needs to Jesus. Second, final application. Let us bring the needs of others to Jesus. What about when your spouse has needs or your children or your friends or your neighbors? How easy is it to give advice rather than pointing them to Jesus and lifting them up in prayer? Listen, advice is great. I mean, we all need it. I need advice more than most people because I don't know what tool you use for what job. So I have to call people all the time. I don't know how to do this. Advice is great. Advice doesn't change the heart unless it's advice about going to Jesus. And what I mean by going to Jesus is let me remind you what he's like and let me encourage you to ask for his help. It's not super complicated, but it's often neglected. Let me remind you about what Jesus is like, and let me encourage you to ask for his help. Look, how often does a wife have a very difficult day, 
And the first thing that a husband thinks to say is something other than, let me remind you that Jesus loves you and we can go to him right now for help. He might have said a lot of other great things. Oh, we're going to take care of that. I'm going to talk to him. I'll make sure she never says that to you again. And let's, let's go on vacation. I mean, there might have been a lot of other wonderful things said, but sometimes in all of the good things said, it's not, let me remind you that Jesus is compassionate and powerful, and he's able to meet you at your greatest need. Look, fathers, can I just point out, if you do nothing else but that, you've done the most important thing. If you do everything else but that, you've missed the most important thing. Husbands, our families need to bring their greatest needs to Jesus. This is why fathers should take particular responsibility on Sunday mornings, to have their family ready, to be there on time. Why? Because we're coming to meet with Jesus, and we've had a week full of needs that need to be met by his word and by singing his truth. So fathers, let me appeal to you. If, if you're not bringing your family to the Lord Jesus in ongoing family devotions, in private conversations, in the priority of a Sunday gathering, you're missing the most important thing you're called to do. Yes, you're called to provide and protect them from the robber and you the one that hunts out the rat in the backyard. Yes, do all that stuff. But the most important thing is bringing them to the Lord Jesus, reminding them what he's like and then helping them to ask him for his help. Mothers, the most important thing your children need from you is to tell them about Jesus and urge them to call out to him. They need that more than academic advice, sports advice, a great family schedule, help in their self-image. What they need more than any of that is a mother that says, you know what's a great thing to talk about right now when you're frustrated with your math homework? Is that Jesus knows how difficult this is for you. And he is right here, ready to hear your prayer. Listen, if that's rare or non-existent, that's the most important thing. That'd be like the doctor who knows the antibiotic is needed and says, you know what, let's skip it. Do we believe that Jesus is compassionate and powerful? and yet not function like that from one day to the next? Do we bring our own needs to the Lord Jesus and do we bring the needs of others to the Lord Jesus? The greatest needs, the hard-hearted child, the willful, rebellious son or daughter, the estranged spouse, the bullheaded boss or employee, the pressure from the neighborhood, HOA, <laughs> What's the need that's on your heart? What's, what's the ongoing need? What's the greatest need? Ongoing sickness, suffering, challenge with someone's disposition towards you in their relationship. This passage and this book invites us to bring your greatest need. A major part of what it means to be a Christian is we are the people who believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he invites us to do what he calls us to do. He is the Savior full of power and compassion, displayed ultimately by dying on a cross. To that degree, he is willing to meet our greatest need. Let us bring our greatest need to him. Let us not be those who affirm that on Sunday and go through life saying, I got it. See you next week. Let us bring our needs 
and the needs of others, our spiritual needs, our spiritual struggles, our spiritual rebellion, our spiritual weakness, our vulnerability, our dark thoughts, our hard-headedness, our hard-heartedness, let us bring it to the Lord. And let us experience him saying to us, be opened. Be opened. He is the Savior of compassion and courage. He does all things well. He is the high priest sympathetic with our weakness. He bends low to meet our greatest suffering. He enters our world of sorrow and takes our grief upon himself. His power is unlimited and shockingly it is channeled toward us in compassion. Behold, Mark says, the compassionate king. Bring your greatest needs to him. Let's pray. I'm going to invite Reuben to come up and just play quietly behind me. And I'd like us just to do this right now, to respond by bringing our greatest needs to the Lord Jesus. Let's just take a minute. Let's just bring our greatest needs to him. List them out to him. Lord, if there are practical ways that we have been trying to avoid thinking about our needs by escaping to distracting things, Lord, forgive us. If we've been trusting in ourselves, looking to our own strength, trying to just keep pressing forward without admitting our need of you, Lord, forgive us. Lord, we know who you are. Help us to live in light of who you are. Lord, I want to pray for fathers that you would bring a boldness in their leadership of their home, that, that they would be the lead voice in calling the family to bring themselves to you. Well, that may be awkward at first. I just, I just pray for the absence of the fear of man and timidity, that just the willingness to say, let's, let's come to the Lord right now. He is merciful and powerful, compassionate. Well, give, give our fathers boldness, even this week. But if there's anybody that's facing a recent need that has struck them with a, an abrupt kind of force, Lord, a, a recent suffering or a recent revelation of some area of, of difficulty or sin in their life, Lord, I, I pray they would count this message as a personal invitation from you, that the timing of this is just perfect, Lord, that, that you are inviting them to bring their need to you so you can meet them at their greatest need. 
Lord, we confess that what the crowd said was true. You do all things well. So we entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.